0: Hello, my name is Veronika Kasova. I live in Edinburgh and I just graduated with a Masters in Psychology of Mental Health. Marion recommended me the Clinical Psychologist Collective when I was networking on LinkedIn and I must say I love it. Um, it is one of a kind. It's like a window into the lives of people on the path of becoming a psychologist. The stories are unique, honest and filled with a kind of intangible wisdom only personal storytelling can uncover. A common thread in the stories I valued most was to be compassionate not only with others, but with myself too. Also not fixating on becoming a psychologist, but enjoying life, growth, and the final results will come as a byproduct. Marianne, thank you for taking the time to collate all the stories. The book is a true gem, and I think every aspiring psychologist should have a copy on their shelf. Thank you. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast.
1: To Mary Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of my world. One of the things I've really enjoyed about this podcast is having the ability to help you learn about new and different ways that you can gain experience or even gain formal qualifications in psychology. So that is exactly what we are doing in today's episode. And this is a method I'd never heard of before so with that little bit of intrigue um, I will um, leave you now and you will then um, yeah you'll be introduced to my guest and I will catch you on the other side hope you find this so useful hi welcome along and I just want to welcome and introduce our guest for today and we are joined by Anaga Sharma hi Anagar.
2: hi Marianne it's really lovely to be here today
1: It's so lovely to have you here, and I again accosted you on LinkedIn, so you'd connected with me, I think after you'd read the Clinical Psychologist Collective book, and then you were like, yeah, I am going to connect with her, she seems all right, Um, and then I spotted recently that you are something that I'd never heard of, and so I messaged you for more information. You are a trainee clinical and trainee forensic psychologist at the same time, aren't you?
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: Love it. Could you tell us a little bit more about how that works and how you got into it and what your journey was before you became a trainee? Quite a big question, that one.
2: That's a big question. Yeah, sure. So I'm currently a second year trainee forensic and clinical psychologist, and I'm on the University of Birmingham Forensic Clinical Psychology Doctorate. So it it was kind of one of the first, I think the only one in the UK at the moment, I might be wrong with that the first combined doctorate where you can train to become a forensic and a clinical psychologist so it's a four-year course and essentially it combines elements from the clinical psychology doctorate that's run at Birmingham and the forensic psychology doctorate so in a way typically that if you wanted to become dual qualified as both a forensic and clinical psychologist you would have to go and do both doctorates separately kind of one after each other so you do maybe clinical training first then forensic or vice versa But the course was developed in a way that instead of doing two doctorates which then would mean probably about six years at least it kind of cuts and cuts and gets rid of anything that overlaps so i wouldn't have to do the same teaching again um, when i'm doing the kind of more forensic teaching if i've had it already in the clinical elements so in that sense the first two years of the course are aligned with the clinical psychology doctorate at, at the university so i have kind of clinical teaching and then the last two years are with the forensic doctorate. So we join their cohort and have the forensic teaching.
1: Sounds amazing. And do you still have to do a thesis as part of that?
2: Yes. So that still includes a thesis, but you just be doing one. And I guess you start kind of collecting ideas for that in the first year. And then the second, third and fourth years are kind of where that kind of goes ahead. And then you submit it in your fourth year. So I guess compared to clinical trainees, you have an extra year then to do your thesis in the write-up.
1: Yeah, so it's four years, and you come out with both, and then you can register with the HCPC and the BPS with as both. Yeah, that's right. Oh, love that time efficiency as well. Because who wants to study for six years if you can do it for four? Really, really yeah. good.
2: Really, I good. really admire people who've done both because I, I think it's it's very long, and I think it's a lot of hard work. But being able to do it in a in a shorter route and still have the same benefits, I think, is really important.
1: And I understand um, from our little pre-chat that even within your cohort, perhaps some of you are funded and some of you are self-funded. So there's kind of a disparity even within the cohort.
2: Yeah. So um, the course started running in 2013 and they typically take five or six trainees um, kind of per cohort. So I'm self-funded, but there are some trainees who are also funded. So there isn't like, a, a, as far as I'm aware, there isn't like specific places that are just... Self-funded or just funded. So, I guess from my experiencing of self-funding, that means that you'd have to pay the university tuition fee, as you would for like an undergraduate um, degree, and you pay a certain amount per annum. I started in twenty twenty one, and my fee per year is thirteen and a half thousand pounds, which is a lot of money. You can definitely appreciate that. Um, And I think that fee kind of changes every year, which is probably based on inflation. I'm not sure exactly what. Um, And I guess with self-funded that means when you do have your placement you're on an honorary contract so you won't necessarily get a paid placement i know that there are some paid placements out there i'm not sure how easy they are to find um and i guess that that could be difficult but so far my my placements have been uh, more honorary contracts but there are some people on on the course who are funded and i know the university does have links with the birmingham solihull um nhs trust and with st andrew's healthcare and they're a private healthcare company um, I'm not entirely sure how the the funding works but I guess it would be kind of speaking with the course and speaking with um, kind of line management to sort that out. Yeah
1: so are you eligible to apply for like student loans funding to help or does it all have to be literally out of your own pocket?
2: Yeah so eligible to apply so I've I've applied for the postgraduate doctoral loan which is Held by the government, and it, it kind of works in a similar way as you would for like an undergraduate tuition fee. So you apply for the loan. Um, I think the amount that you can get is around twenty-seven thousand. It might be a bit more than that. I think that regularly changes. Um, and I guess you can do whatever you want with that kind of funding that you get, and you get it as you would in increments. So at three or four points in the year, you get that kind of money, um, and then you're responsible for doing with kind of whatever you want with that. Um, but it doesn't cover the entire tuition fee. That's the only thing.
1: Okay, so are you having to kind of get paid employment to cover your living fees then as well?
2: Um, so i I think some people probably would try and do that. I think I'm quite lucky because I've been financially in a position where I could self fund. But I appreciate that's not the case for a lot of people, and that the fees are really high. Um, and we're not we don't really get the traditional like health like HEE funding that the clinical trainees would get. And it's kind of a bit more similar to the forensic in that sense, whereas because of forensic trainees tend to self-fund and don't have that allocated funding from the government or the NHS.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a difference, isn't there? So I remember when um I was an assistant psychologist, actually it's St Andrews Healthcare. Um, and yes, yeah, the forensic trainees were self-funding, whereas the clinical mm-hmm. ones weren't, and it's it's just difficult because essentially you're doing a very similar job, um, and I think even some of the teaching that you're doing is pretty similar. Are you going to the clinical teaching, or is it like separate for just you six co- on your cohort?
2: So we join um, the other cohort teaching others. I think it'd be very small for just the six of us um, to have our teaching. So in the first two years, we join teaching on the clinical course. So we have all basically exclusively clinical teaching. And then in the last two years, the third and fourth years, we join the forensic cohort and we have more of the forensic based teaching then. But our placements across the kind of four years can be kind of exclusively clinical. So maybe in more kind of clinical NHS mental health settings, community or inpatient, Um, but they can also be in forensic settings. So forensic mental health services um, and prison or probation services as well.
1: I just think it sounds brilliant. Like you must, I don't know, just that depth of knowledge and experience that you're able to be acquiring is really good so when I was an assistant I was in forensic services all of my assistant posts were were forensic services Um, and I really liked the yeah that knowledge that I had to bring to the table and my experience of working in forensic services and with you know forensic psychiatrists for example but I was aiming down the clinical route but it's kind of it's just kind of interesting and nice to know that there's There is a path where you could potentially combine both of them without having to do six years.
2: Yeah. And I guess what's really helpful is about this kind of doctorate is you have clinical psychologists who can work really in a range of settings because of their training. So they can work in clinical settings, but they can also work in forensic settings. Whereas from my understanding, forensic psychologists are kind of more able to work just in forensic settings. But I guess having this doctorate means that I can work in a variety of settings and really draw on kind of the skills from both disciplines. So we know that in kind of in forensic settings or for example, in prison population, there's lots of individuals who are in there who have undiagnosed mental health needs or their mental health needs aren't often recognized or they're not often met in that setting. But then we also know in clinical settings or in forensic mental health settings that things like risk assessment is really important on thinking about when an individual is well enough and ready enough to move on if they're in an inpatient setting. Um, into the community and think about what that means for not only public protection but any potential victims of kind of crime so it's really helpful because you get training that's specific across all of those four years where you address both of those elements Um, because I guess I was kind of keen and either applying to my course or applying to the clinical course and kind of my plan was to keep rotating and rotating until I get into one of them and luckily I got into my course and I guess the only thing about the clinical course that I felt was that I would only really get, I would, wouldn't get much forensic teaching. And I guess the only forensic placement I'd have was, would be maybe on my third year or more of a specialist placement. Um, but I get that kind of throughout with my course at the moment, which I'm really enjoying.
1: Yeah. So your placements are, well, my question should be, what sort of work are you doing on your placements? And I you don't, you know, we don't, we don't want to identify exactly where you are. But, you know, mm-hmm. could you give us an overview or an example of what a typical placement might be for someone in your cohort?
2: Yeah so I guess the placements kind of vary but in terms of the course we kind of align with the clinical course in that aspect that you need to gain competencies and experiences working across the lifespan so that will include an adult placement, an older adult placement, a child and young person placement and also kind of a neuro- neurotypical population so for example like a learning disabilities placement but also to get competencies in the forensic side you need to work with offenders and or kind of victims of crime and we know that in a lot of settings or in a lot of cases that individuals who are victims of crime sometimes in later life then also go on to offend so I guess with that it kind of depends because I could be on a particular type of placement and someone else on my cohort may um, not be on the same type of placement but we just have to gain competencies in all of that across the four years so my kind of how the structure of the courses is, is that in your first year you have a kind of 10 month long placement in your second year you have two kind of placements that are six months third year I think or fourth year it's kind of either one 10 months and then two six months and that could run concurrently so you have maybe two days in one service one day in another service um, but it's I guess the course is really tailored to your journey so if you were able to get a placement that it might be better to be there for 10 months then you might have a 10 month placement for kind of gaining specialty in that area so it does really vary Um, so at the moment I've had a 10-month forensic adult placement when I was in inpatient settings and I've also had I'm currently on a forensic learning disability placement and then I'll go on to have another six-month placement at the end of kind of towards the next half of my second year if that makes sense
1: it does make sense, and it sounds yeah like just really yeah just very similar to the clinical. It's just that you've got that added element of forensic stuff as well. Um, yeah. And was your journey before you a- applied and was successful in this place was it already kind of quite forensicky anyway? Could you tell us a little bit about what yeah what yeah what you did in terms of undergrad and you know where you went from there?
2: Yeah, of course. So I come to my A-levels, I got into an undergrad and I did my degree in psychology um, and I had some forensic modules in my third year that I really, really enjoyed and I had some health modules that I also really, really enjoyed. So I was kind of like, oh, do I apply? I wanted—I know I wanted to study further and do a master's and I thought, oh, do I apply for a health psychology-based master's or a forensic psychology-based master's? And I ended up going with a forensic group. So I then went and did my master's in forensic psychology. Um, And my intention at that time was to then apply for a forensic doctorate. And the master's that I was on was accredited for the stage one of qualification in forensic psychology. And it's kind of different from how it works. But stage two would mean you'd either go on and do a forensic psychology doctorate or you would be a trainee forensic psychology um, psychologist and get kind of your forensic placements, um, however long that might take. You wouldn't have to do a thesis, and then you'd be qualified as a forensic psychologist. So again, quite difficult from quite different from um, clinical training, and a bit different from my course. Um, after that, I think I thought I would get an assistant post quite easily, but I didn't because I didn't have a lot of experience. I think a lot of people also experienced that. So I worked as a trainee peer support worker for a few months. I then moved on to a healthcare assistant role because um, I wanted to get some more forensic experience. So that was in a secure forensic unit. I was there for about eight or nine months and then I got my first assistant psychology post um, and that was in a, a forensic service as well and then after that I was kind of at the point when I was deciding oh should I go down the forensic route or the clinical route or kind of my course was, which is the combined elements and I thought maybe it would be really helpful for me to step into more of a clinical post so I could kind of see how I liked it and see kind of what the differences were from my current um, position at the time so I then went on to a clinical post um, where I was working across two services. And I kind of found that I liked working in clinical settings, but forensic was really where my passion was. So after that, I decided I would apply for the, as I said, the forensic clinical doctorate and the clinical doctorate because I could work in kind of either settings with both of those courses. Um, I actually did apply for the forensic doctorate. Um, I didn't get in, I was on first reserve. Um, and then I also applied for my course in the same year and I ended up getting on. So. I guess compared to other people I don't have a lot of a lot lot of experience before I got onto training but more of it was forensic based. Is it a
1: similarly competitive um, course to get onto as you'd find with clinical how did you experience that?
2: Um, I would say it's kind of different in competitiveness because I would acknowledge it is still competitive and it is kind of hard to get on the course but it's different in the sense where clinical courses you have a lot more places um I'm not really sure how many places there are these days and it varies per course but you might have kind of 20 or 30 people per cohort and then you get kind of a really large number of people applying and it and it kind of narrows down with that but with my course I'm assuming that less people apply but also there's only five or six places so it is competitive but I think it's competitive in a different way if that makes sense
1: Yeah, brilliant. And in terms of the timeline, obviously for Mm -hmm. clinical, we tend to expect applications to open around September and to shut um, kind of mid-November it is now. And then interviews will be kind of springtime. How does it work um, in terms of your course?
2: Sure. Yeah. So the I think every year the application process opens in January and then I can't remember the specific closing date, but it's around kind of May, June or July. Um, and then your interview is kind of within a month or two. So it's I guess the timelines are quite, difficult, uh, quite different from the clinical course where they tend to be earlier in the year. Um, and I guess with the application, what's different is as well as you'd apply through the University of Birmingham. So there isn't like a kind of a clearinghouse portal that you would apply. You just go directly through the university.
1: Great. And it starts in September, does it? Is it academic
2: year? Yeah. So it starts in September and it's it'll be kind of September of the year. You start till... The September, I guess, four years after mm. I guess the timelines could vary in that sense because if there were periods where, for example, if people are from maternity leave or they 've got extended sickness, then it's like kind of the minimum amount you would complete the courses in four years. But if there are reasons that you might need to extend things, then that is also possible. The course are very supportive.
1: oh, that's really good to know, and actually, this is ideal timing with this podcast going out in January as well, because people might be like, "Oh." There's another little string to my bow. And if people are waiting for clinical, but they are in a position where they could self-fund or whether their current employer might consider self-funding them, it kind of prompts a little conversation, doesn't it? To kind of, yeah, to have, not not even a backup plan, but have, have a different plan, you know, something that I certainly wasn't aware of. But this could have potentially been a quite a good route for me, given my forensic background. And yeah, I might have quite liked doing qualifying in both but it future proofs you as well doesn't it so Mm. when I was um qualifying I was like well I could apply for forensic and you know I ended up going down um into clinical places but you don't always necessarily want to work in forensic services Mm -hmm. and you don't always necessarily want to work in clinical services but um when I became a mummy, for me, I felt like I wasn't so keen on going back to mm-hmm. forensic. Um, and I know some people feel the same as well. And when I was working with trainee forensic psychologists, some of them were saying at the time, you know, I find it really difficult to work with people who've hurt animals, for example. And mm-hmm. others would be saying, well, I find it really difficult to work with people who've hurt children. You know, there's, there's different, like, hard limits, isn't there? But yeah. being, yeah, just being qualified across both areas is really nice future proofing because you don't know how your life might change or exactly. how, you know, society and culture might change as well.
2: Yeah. And I agree completely, because I guess that's why I was really attracted to the course, because I thought, you know, when I qualify, if I want to work in a particular mm-hmm. clinical setting and a few years later, I might want something different then I have that flexibility to change. And I've always said, like, I really enjoy working in forensic settings now, but I'm not sure I would always want to work in a forensic setting. And there are other areas within forensics and other areas within clinical psychology that I find really interesting, like clinical kind of health services. So having that kind of option there, I think, is is something really important for me. And I think that's why people might be attracted to the course as well. Definitely. Flexibility and choice. Like, yeah, all the way.
1: Um, something has been really interesting to talk about with um, some of the podcast guests recently is thinking about, you know, how faith and culture shows up for them and how that um, fits with what they're doing in the psychology world. Would it be okay if you feel comfortable to talk about it, to talk a little bit about your faith and your culture and how, yeah, and how that impacts on you and your psychology journey?
2: Yeah, sure. So I am from of an asian indian background um and i follow a religious faith as well and i think kind of being in a field um as a a brown asian woman there's not always a lot of people who look like me um there might be a lot of service users that are from kind of minority backgrounds but actually there's not a lot of professionals that look like me and work with the same people that we do so i think having representation in the field is really really important Um, and it was only recently in somewhere i worked that i actually was able to work with people from a similar background of me, and it, I just found it really, really nice to have that view there. Um, and I guess something that the course are really kind of seeing as important as well is with race and culture. And actually, in my course, we have race workshops, so we have them, I think, three or four times a year, and we get together with our cohort and some members of the course team, and we talk about things like race and culture and what we bring to our training, how we can help others to explore their race and culture and the impact that it has on them and their lives so I think that's something that's really important to think about um and yeah and just know because I, I think that's maybe not something that a lot of people know about the course that they are really driven about that and I guess the course is based in Birmingham and Birmingham is a really diverse area so thinking about working with the communities we serve and having that representation and developing kind of professionals and trainees who are minded in that sense and they have an appreciation for the impact it can have um, on people and their background is really important
1: yeah i worked in the heart of birmingham for four years after i qualified and it's it's a real privilege to work with so many different cultures and backgrounds but it's also a real skill so in my um in my working week i would often be working probably with maybe even as many as one in four um, cases were using an interpreter, um, mm-hmm. either because the child or the young person didn't speak English or their parents didn't and we needed to be able to kind of make sure everyone was understanding what we were doing and it's it's a real skill actually learning to work with different cultures and to trying to respect different cultures and values mm-hmm. and um, I used to try and make it my mission that I would learn at least how to say hello and goodbye um, and how are you oh. um, to people in their own language and I'd like have it all written down in my diary on the right page and I'd have to flip to it and then like remind myself but it seemed to fall out of my head as soon as I stopped working with a client <laughs> but, yeah it's important to yeah to do our best to work with people and um, to involve them with the service but it, it, I think it is also a very unique skill that you build when you're working in really diverse areas
2: mm-hmm. yeah and I, th- I think that's really important because I guess developing services that are culturally competent is really helping to serve the people that we work with. And if we think about in a lot of cases that we know that help seeking behaviours are less likely to be displayed by people of minority backgrounds or people um, uh, who have immigrated here or not necessarily born in this country. Um, So I think working with that is really important and thinking about what we can do to help the people out there actually access the services and get the help that they need and thinking about what we can do as professionals to make them feel a bit more comfortable and if there's anything that we can put in place to make that more more likely to happen i think that's something that we should really be thinking about all the time
1: i definitely agree i definitely agree um and Another question that I often ask people on the podcast is what your top tips or the way that you help yourself to not burn out um, on your way to becoming qualified. So could you give us a little bit of a flavour about how you kind of sort your work life balance out so that you're thriving, not just surviving?
2: Yeah, of course. And I, I think. A lot of that is really important. I think one thing that's really important with that is firstly boundaries. And I was listening to another episode of your podcast earlier and that was mentioned and I thought, yeah, boundaries is really important. So for me, what I like to do is I try my best and I'm not always good at this. And I think that's a very big learning curve for, for me is to kind of work within your work hours and not go over your working hours and make sure you're actually taking care of yourself in that way. And I guess the way that the course is structured is that we have three days of placement one university teaching day which is face-to-face and also one study day and I try my best to stay within those boundaries so I'm only going to do my placement work on placement days I'm going to do my other uni assignments or my thesis stuff on my study day and then I'm going to focus just on university teaching and socializing with people in in the class on kind of my university days and I guess one thing that I try to stick by the best as I can is not doing any work on the weekends that's kind of uni related or work related I say that I try my best um and especially like around now when it's like the more festive time where I want to be taking time off kind of placement and spending more time with friends and family that's I think that's my saving grace and the only time I try and do work on the weekends for example I've got an assignment coming up or something really important that I need to get finished by a particular deadline but I find if even if that means spending more time you know Monday to Friday doing a particular piece of work at least I have my weekend so I can rest and recover spend time with my loved ones go out and do things that are important to me I like exercising I have some fish that I take care of my pets so like lots of things like that and that kind of helps to take a break because you know people always say you have to get on have to get on training have to get on training but actually when you get onto training you I kind of had the impression like I knew training would be difficult and I think there are times where I found it a bit more difficult or I've had more of a steeper learning curve and other times where I felt OK, it's not, I guess what I've learned, it's not intense 100% of the time. There are bits of the course where actually I might need to knuckle down and do a bit more work and I have you know less of a social life on the weekend. And there are other times where I'm feeling a bit more relaxed and I'm on top of things. So I guess boundaries, and I think time management was a real one because there were times where I'm like, oh, you know, I've got work coming up, but I'm going to have a break and then I'm going to have an extended break and then I'm not going to do any work, which is bad. So I think for me, learning how to manage that to not be someone who's working 24-7 but taking some time out to relax is how things like you can stop things like burnout and just being honest with yourself and realizing when you do need a break and I think also being honest to the course team so we have kind of monthly meetings with someone from the course team and it's kind of a check-in on how things are going with the course how are things going academically but also how are things going with placement and then the last kind of most important question is how are you And actually, that's your space to be really honest with yourself and with the course and let them know if there's anything that you're finding difficult or struggling with. And they are really accommodating and they are very supportive. So they're always kind of looking out for your best interests. And I think that's one of the really big perks of the course is having that support from the course team. Good. Yeah, it does
1: make all the difference when you're seen as a human. But yeah, people find it strange when I say I really enjoyed my training and my cohort have reminded me. I didn't always enjoy it you know there was one particular experience which was quite challenging personally and professionally and it led to me being quite upset you know um for probably a couple of weeks and they're like well don't forget that because that was still part of your experience but Mm -hmm. on the whole genuine genuinely and generally I really enjoyed it like I felt like excited I felt proud I felt like I was able to achieve and like I was doing good work and learning good stuff and having good relationships with my cohort and the people Mm -hmm. in my team. So I did enjoy it. And I felt like, like you said, it it was tricky at times. Um, And certainly it's not much fun when someone says, oh, do you want to come to the pub? Um, and you go no because I've got an assignment to do (laughs) you know uh, yeah it doesn't you know work doesn't always finish and end at like 5 p.m because you Mm -hmm. you know your clinical placement might do we forensic placement in your case Um, but then you've got an assignment that you know that's due in next week and so it is another added layer of demand Mm -hmm. but it's well worth it you know I wouldn't be speaking to you now had I not done what I'd done and got to the end so um, yeah but you should kind of it should, be enjoyable, it should be enjoyable, at least at parts, along your journey, I think.
2: Yeah, and I agree. And I go through those similar waves of kind of the imposter syndrome when you first start. And I think the imposter syndrome comes out every time I start a new placement. Like, ah, oh, what am I doing? Do I know my stuff? And actually, then I kind of relax and take back. And I think about all the teaching that I've had at university and all the things I've learned on placement. All of the things that I'm bringing from me, myself as a person, from my background, my culture my experiences, my pre-qualification experiences, which have been the most important and valuable and thinking about what I bring and what I learn and putting those all together and actually really, I think, oh, you know, I'm okay. I know what I'm doing. There might be some times where I don't know, but there are people around me who can support me, whether that's people on the course, um, like my my cohort who I really, 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 really get along with, or it could be people on the course team or it could be kind of friends and family and just knowing actually I'm okay. And yes it's a process it's four years it might be a long time longer than kind of clinical training but actually it's really worth it in the end and it's really rewarding to kind of be in a job where you can help people and I think that's kind of another key motivator for me
1: definitely it's the biggest privilege people
2: people I think you either
1: you are a healthy type of person or you're not um but I just honestly I think I've got the best job in the world you might have the second best job in the world once you're qualified (laughs) in dual modalities but um I just love it I love what I do um and it's yeah I just I consider it a real privilege Annika have I not asked you something that you think I should have done
2: um I don't think so I think we're good Good.
1: We've covered most things. But honestly, it's been the biggest privilege to have you on here and to to learn more about this pretty unique scheme um, to become dual qualified. So thank you so much for accepting my invitation to talk about it. And you've done an incredible job. Um and I know people will find it really interesting.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And I hope um someone out there listening to this might have an insight into a course that they might have not heard of, and I hope it helps someone.
1: and if if people get onto training as a result of hearing about it we want to know about it don't we we want you know contact me let me know and I can get in contact with you and let you know because you know that's I love it when people say oh I didn't realize that I could do something else instead of an assistant post and actually because of reading your book or hearing your podcast I've now I've got this job that I wouldn't even thought to search for so it's really nice when we get to actually impact in a really positive way on people's lives from what we're doing so yeah if this is useful for you uh, along the line um then yeah we love your feedback we love to we love to know so thank you so much and wishing you all of the best with the rest of your training and with your um with your um doctoral thesis um as well
2: thank you so much
1: wow how amazing was that anaga has blown my mind actually um it's really good to know that there's this dual modality way of um of qualifying and it might be that there's other courses um that are also offering this across the country as well um or it might just be that it's still birmingham that are the only people doing it but how incredible to think that that exists so thank you so much um to anaga and like we said if you find this interesting or if it leads you down a different path than the one that you'd imagined let us know let me know how that pans out for you do come along and share your thoughts about this episode and any other episode in the Aspiring Psychologist community on Facebook. Come along, um, it will say brackets free group. And if you'd like some more bespoke support, advice, guidance, um, please do consider joining the Aspiring Psychologist membership. And recently, um, someone in the membership had said that they'd joined because they weren't feeling that supported or understood by their supervisor at the time. Um, And actually, it really helped them to feel like they were able to gain more relevant skills and experience. And that has been something that had been invaluable for them. So maybe you are in a particular job situation where you're not feeling perhaps able to learn CBT or different specialist approaches such as cognitive analytic therapy um, or, um, you know, Or perhaps you're just not feeling able to do much reflective practice where you are working or with the staff team around you. And that's something that we really excel at in the membership as well. So if you think that might be useful, please do come along um, and consider joining us um, because it's a really nice, supportive community. Thank you so much for listening. Please do take a moment to drop um, a review or even just a rating on Apple Podcasts because it helps us to prove that what we're doing is useful and so helps us reach a wider audience. Thank you so much for your time and, as ever, for being part of my world. Take care. Reflective
0: account of my on the way to getting qualified, so many tips and lessons to learn from, so many things that you can try, the aspiring psychologist collective, aspire. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent.
3: I'm Jo and I work as an assistant practitioner in a CAM service in Lancashire. I bought and read Marianne's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, to accompany me while completing the clinical psychology training application. It proved to be really good company. I found it sparked ideas of how to build experience and skills, but more than that, it offered the chance to get lost in people's stories. It provided a timely reminder not to get so caught up in an end goal. And to value and enjoy each job we fulfil along the way because the work we do now is important and matters to those we sit alongside as well as ourselves. It also gave the reassurance that there are eclectic routes into clinical psychology which is important for me as someone who's had a meandering journey and not a typical route to the profession. I wholeheartedly recommend the book for both personal and professional reasons Be prepared to put evening tasks on hold for a while though, because once you've started reading, it's tough to put it down.